Well, good morning, church. It's a privilege of mine to be with you this morning and open God's word with you. As you know, uh, last week we started a series called The Divine Pivot, and we've been looking at how God um, interrupts our lives in a really great way. We've given it the subtitle of 12 Irresistible But God Interruptions. And last week, if you remember, we looked at Romans, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, a very familiar verse, hopefully, to many of you. Maybe you learned it in Awana growing up or memorized it. Um, Maybe you'd even be able to say it uh, with me or under your breath as I say it. Let's see how we did it. Memorizing Romans 5, 8. Romans 5, 8 goes like this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a beautiful verse that we looked at last week and saw how God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Well, today we're going to look at another very familiar uh, but God verse in your Bibles that you should, you probably know. But here's one thing I've been learning. As you open to Ephesians chapter two, will you start opening your Bible there uh, with me? Um, One thing I've been learning as we've been studying these phrases about God is they're all over the scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, this phrase of but God is seen throughout all scriptures and it tells a beautiful story of God and his great love for us and and how mankind ever since Genesis has been on this trajectory away from God and God and his sovereignty and his love and his power has been pursuing mankind and it's just been beautiful to learn um, and to see. So I hope you all have that same um, eye-opening experience that I've been having is just, man, God, you're so gracious in, in turning sinners back to you. Well, today we're in Ephesians chapter two, and hopefully you'll see our but God verse in just a moment, but I'd like to read the whole paragraph for you. I'd like to read verses one through 10 uh, with you and for you, uh, and maybe we'll see um, just some brilliant things that God has done for us. Let's start in verse one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But... God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What a beautiful, beautiful text and what an incredible story it tells. For the next two weeks, we will discuss God's divine pivot in our salvation. That's what we're gonna specifically look look at as how God 
intersects our life story and changes and, and transforms it and saves us and redeems us and buys us back. Our text today discusses how we are saved, the theology and doctrine of how we are saved. Our text next week discusses who can be saved. And just it's going to be beautiful learning for us all on just, again, how God radically saves sinners like us. But as we dive into Ephesians chapter 2 today, I want you to keep two people in mind. We're going to look at theology and some doctrine, the understanding of how God saves us, but I don't want you to lose the, the, the personalness of this, the practicalness of this passage. So as we look at this doctrine, I want you to keep two people in mind. The first is yourself. I want you to consider your story your conversion story. Go back to when you heard about Christ and, and you believed in Christ and that day that God saved you. Go back to that story. One of the beautiful privileges I have of being on staff here is I get to lead membership class. And in the second week of membership class, we ask those people going through the class to share their story. And it is such a privilege that I get to just sit and hear story after story of God's amazing grace in people's lives. Sometimes they're real little children when they hear about the gospel and believe. Other times they're, they're middle-aged or late in life and God radically saves them. Today, as we discuss Ephesians 2, go to your story. Think about your conversion and how you, when you believed the gospel and how it felt and, and where you were, who shared the gospel with you. Go to those moments and see how God was working in and through that situation. And then the second person I want you to think about is someone you love in your life who does not yet know Christ. Maybe it's an unbelieving friend, a family member, or even a neighbor, somebody your heart breaks for when you think of them without Christ. Uh, I want you to wrestle with their story and what God might be up to in their story of redeeming them and saving them. So think through those two individuals as we wrestle through our text today. So let's start with, with you and your conversion story. For just a moment, reflect on your story of when and how God saved you. Do you remember that day? Do you remember where you were? Who, who, who shared the gospel with you? Do you remember those circumstances? Not everybody has a date, but sometimes they have a, they have a story or conversations. And go back to that moment. How did it feel? How would you describe what happened that day if I asked you to do that right now? What would the circumstances have been? I'll share with you a brief, my, my story briefly. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were in ministry. And so ever since I was born, I was pointed to Jesus. I was told the gospel. I've been told the gospel my entire life. But for some reason, in God's sovereignty, I remember we were at my grandmother's church, not even my home church. We're at my grandmother's church in Waterloo. She lived in Waterloo and my parents sent me to children's church and I had a Sunday school teacher. I have no idea who it was. I don't know her name. I've never seen her since. And she was faithful to proclaim the gospel. And for some reason, I had a light bulb moment that day of she explained man's problem of sin and separation from God and how we want what we want. And, and, and we have a great need, which is a savior. And that savior is Jesus Christ. And for some reason, my parents, no doubt, have been faithful to share the gospel with me. For some reason that day, I was like, I need that. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I, 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 I sin every day and I need a savior. And I put my faith in Christ that day. 
I probably came home. My parents were probably frustrated. Like, are you joking me? We've shared the gospel with you every this late. No, they didn't care. They were just grateful. My eyes were open to the beauty of Jesus for sure. Uh, but for some reason, God in that day saved me. And if you were to ask me that day, Travis, what did God save you from? What did he forgive you of? What did he redeem you from? Here's what my answers would have been. Well, I, I, I've been a disobedient child. I don't always obey. I don't always obey the first time. Um, I'm disrespectful many times. I, I'm for sure mean to my brother and sister. I don't treat them real well. For sure, I'd have to be guilty as a liar. I fib or, or I feed the dog my green peas instead of eating them, right? Like for sure, I'm in those categories, guilty. And that day, God forgave me of those, right? That's what I would have said. And then if, if you were, but if we were to ask God, God and his sovereignty and all knowing God, if you were to ask God, God, that day, what did you save Travis from? He would have listed my list and then he would have said, but so much more. There's so many things about Travis's current situation that he did not know. So much was true of Travis that, that I saved him from that he would never be able to articulate. That's what Ephesians 2 does for us. Ephesians 2 unpacks the reality of our condition, the reality of our sinfulness. And Ephesians 2 says that my situation was way worse than I could have ever expected. And so was yours. And God, in that moment, saved me from the sins I was aware of and so many other things. And that's what we're going to look at today. Ephesians chapter two, one through three describes what we were really like before God miraculously saved us. Things we didn't even know were true of us. You ready? Ready to learn a little bit about yourself and about all of humanity? Paul summarizes our condition in the first nine words in verse one of Ephesians two. It says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Our text today defines our condition before conversion as spiritually dead. Let's see what God's word teaches us about the reality of spiritually dead people this morning. So think about your story, what you were like before conversion, spiritually dead. Let's see if, how Paul describes this, if these would be accurate of you. And then think of your unbelieving loved one and think about them and see if what Paul describes in the first three verses would be accurate of them. If you could be like, yeah, that, that nails it on the head. That exactly describes them. And that described me before I met Christ. So I love, before we show you these, I love the active verb, the active verbs Paul uses to describe a spiritually dead person, right? You'd think maybe a spiritually dead person can't do anything, they're lifeless. That's not how Paul describes spiritually dead people. He actually uses active verbs. He says, you walked, you followed, you lived, you carried, you were by, by your nature. He's describing this active, functioning dead person. Isn't that really interesting? By showing these active verbs, he's showing our complicitness in our sinfulness. He's saying your state was dead, but you were active in that. You weren't a passive dead person. You were, you were 
going along with, with these activities as well. He's also helping you see that spiritually dead people look like they are alive when they aren't. But sadly, the active things that spiritually dead people do are worthless. That's his point. You were alive physically, but spiritually you were dead and you didn't even know it. You might've thought you were alive. You thought you were active. In reality, you weren't. And then he's telling us this, even good things done from a spiritually dead person accomplish nothing. And that's a sad reality that we must understand that many people think they're alive. They even do good things that look religious or moral or ethical. And yet the reality is if they're separated from God, they're worthless. They're not good deeds. So let's look at his list. Four realities of spiritually dead people from the first three verses of Ephesians 2. The first one is this. He says that you were following the course of this world following the course of the world. That should help, that, uh, a word picture should come to mind. And that word picture of, is following the current of a river. Have you ever gone tubing or rafting where you've hopped in the river and the river just kind of takes you wherever the river goes? You have a paddle and you kind of help stay away from the shore a little bit, but the river's in charge, right? That's his picture of following the course of the world, that the culture is the king of your life. And the culture tells you what to do and how to act and how to think. And you are a, a active victim to what the culture is doing. The culture shaping you. And it, it tells you where to go and what to do and how to think. He says, this is what's true of spiritually dead people. The king of their life is not the creator. The king of their life is the culture. And the culture has such an impression on them that they reflect the culture. Before you were made alive, you were, a, you were sitting on the inner tube in the river of the culture. And the culture shaped and, and, and pointed you in a certain direction. And that's true of all spiritually dead people. The culture is the king of their life. The second one he says about spiritually dead people is they're following the prince of the power of the air. And then he says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul's describing that instead of following the one true king, spiritually dead people are following a false king. We know that the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience is Satan. And he's describing for them that those who are without Christ are actually following Satan and listening to his voice. Think about Genesis chapter three for a second. You have Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve have this incredible relationship with God. And then the snake enters the garden and he whispers something into their ear. And Adam and Eve have a choice to listen to the creator God or listen to the prince, the lower power, right? Satan. What do Adam and Eve do? They listen to Satan. And ever since Adam and Eve fell, all of us have done the same thing. Instead of listening to God, our creator, we listen to a lower power, a false king, a fake king, Satan. And Satan's whispers are so powerful in our ear. And all of mankind without God, listen to this false king and obey him and listen to his lies in our ears. 
And sometimes his lies sound so much like truth that we have a hard time discerning truth from false. And, and we're, we're, we're victims of his lies and we listen to him and we follow Satan rather than God. That's the tra trajectory that people are on. Following the prince of the power air, air means that our king is Satan, not God. The third thing he describes spiritually dead people is, is following the passions of our flesh. He says that you're carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Literally, this, it means that we're giving our body whatever it wants. That the king of our life is us and our desires and our, and our wants and our wishes. We're giving into every craving and desire our sinful flesh desires, right? It's lack of self-control. Instead of us being able to say like, no, I wanna honor God with my body and my mind, it's, well, body and mind is king. I'm gonna do what it wants and, and allow it to rule and reign in my life. The king of our life being our own sinful heart and mind instead of the creator and having self-control and saying no to our wicked desires. Use this analogy. It'd be like if the king of your family was your six-year-old son and it was like dinner time and you're like, okay, hey, what do you guys want for dinner? And the king says, Skittles. And you're like, okay, I guess we're giving him Skittles. This is kind of what the unbeliever is like. The king of his life is his selfish desires and passions. And every time he wants something, you give him what he wants. That describes the unbeliever. No self-control. Instead, giving in to passions and desires. And then the last one he says is, by your nature, you are children of wrath and you're headed for destruction. You have this sinful nature and, and you're in, the, in God's wrath. Like all of mankind, you're children of wrath. See, the reality is you and I are never without a king. And for unbeliever, the king is either culture Satan or, their, or themselves. And any one of those three kings that you submit to will always lead you to destruction, always lead you to the wrath of God. When we, we replace king, the true king, God, and we take him off the throne and put anything else in the throne of our life, we're in a path of destruction. Remember, we're following. That's the verb that it keeps using. You're following culture, you're following Satan, you're following your own sinful passions, where are you following them? To destruction, to the wrath of God. So question you guys have to wrestle with, and I have to wrestle with is, which king am I following? That'll help discern if you're still spiritually dead or made alive. Which king are you following? Every king but God will lead you away from God and towards death and destruction, every king. So real for just a second, before we move on, look at this list. Look at this list for a moment. See, no matter how old you were when you were saved, this was your condition before God, spiritually dead. It doesn't matter how many sins you committed, how bad the sins were that you committed. The very fact was that you missed the mark your path was a little off from the path you should have been headed down. And therefore, you were separated from God. You were on the wrong path that only leads to death and destruction. 
you were following a false king. See, if you were to ask six-year-old Travis, seven-year-old Travis, what did God save you from? I'd come up with a list. But if you were to ask God, God would say, man, I saved Travis from the path he was on of destruction towards following the culture. Man, I saved Travis. I radically saved Travis from following the false god, Satan. He was listening to the voice of Satan, the whispers of Satan. And I, I radically, I saved Travis from only following Travis's selfish passions and desires. Travis was on this path towards destruction and wrath. And I grabbed him out of that. I rescued him from that. He only understood his sinful heart towards his parents and siblings. But man, I did so much more in his life. I saved him from so many more things. And that's what our text unpacks for us. Our text teaches us that we were separated from God, both by our active disobedience, as well as our sinful nature we were born with. No one is off the hook. No matter how old you are, no matter how old you were, no one is off the hook. So now just for a moment before we move on, think of your unsafe friend or family member or neighbor. This is your unsafe friend's current condition. Does that describe them pretty well? Does that look like them? They sure look alive. They sure maybe act alive. They might even be very active in religious activity or social service or even justice. But if they are still in their sins and not forgiven, before God, they are dead. Doesn't that break your heart? Man, this was Paul's story before he met Christ. This is my story before he met Christ. And it's your story before you met Christ. Every one of us started our lives spiritually bankrupt, not measuring up, separated from God, running from God instead of towards God. Is there any hope? Is there any chance that somebody so separated from God has a chance to be reconciled? Praise God for verses four and five. This is the divine pivot, the divine interruption. That was our current condition. Let's see how God responds. Verses four and five say this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with, with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, although mankind is constantly running from God on a path away from God, God is constantly pursuing sinners like you and me. Verses four and five tell us that God saw our desperate condition and moved towards us. See, no matter how your conversion felt or it seemed or what you thought about it, the truth is Christ in that moment, he scooped you out of a miry pit and he set your feet on a rock. At your moment of conversion, God reached down into a grave and he gave you life. God who is rich in mercy because of the great love for which he loved you at your moment of salvation. He rescued you from the raging river of our sinful culture. He protected you from following the fake king, Satan. He broke the chains of your sinful desires and he satisfied the wrath of God for you. Isn't that amazing? That's what verses four and five tell us, that but God in your desperate condition radically changed everything. Why did he do that? 
Did he, did he save Travis because Travis is such a good kid? Travis had so much potential. No. The reason he saved me is because God is rich in mercy because of his character. He saved me because he's filthy rich in mercy. That's who he is. That's what he, he's like. And the second thing is because of the great love with which he loved you. He had affection towards you. He created you. He knows you. He loves you. And he saw you running from him and said, that's not okay. I'm coming after him. I'm gonna get them back. I love them. They're my children. I'm gonna go get them. And then I love at the end of verse five, see the, the last phrase in verse five? It's got like these, these parentheses or these lines next to it, which means it doesn't really even fit as like a grammatical sentence. It doesn't even have a good transition word or anything like that. It's just, by grace, you have been saved. It's almost like Paul, after explaining what God radically did in, your, in that moment, he just screams out, by grace, you have been saved. Oh, thank God that he saved us, that he reconciled us. What an amazing verse. So let's continue to move on and see how did God save you? It says in verse five, he made you alive. So let's look at that phrase. What does it mean to be made alive? We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God saved us and he made us alive. What is true of us now? Verse five tells us that God made us alive. Then verses six through 10 explained what happens to those who are made alive. Notice the passive words Paul uses when he describes our new state as spiritually alive. Remember the active verbs when we were dead? Now he uses passive words to describe us made alive. It says, he raised us. You didn't raise yourself. He seated us. You didn't go take a seat in the heavenlies. He, he seated you. Oh, and in case you missed it, verse eight tells us that this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. So what does it mean to be made alive? There's, three, there's a couple things. Verse six says he raised us up. To be raised up should make you think of resurrection. He raised you up. Remember, you were dead in a grave and God raised you up. He resurrected you. At the point of conversion, God scoops up your lifeless body, breathes spiritual breath into your lungs and your pulse begins to beat again. I remember when I was in Bible class, I took a preaching class and we had to prepare a sermon, get it all ready and take it to class one day and practice it. Well, one day our prof says, we're gonna go practice your sermons in a graveyard. And so he took like all 30 or 40 of us and we went to a graveyard and he made us stand in front of a grave and preach our sermon. He said, this is what it's like. This is what Ephesians 2 tells us what you do many times when you preach. There will be spiritually dead people and you'll be telling them, come on, come alive. And they can't. And only God and his power and his amazing might has the ability to raise spiritually dead people to life. It was a very profound thing to be standing in a graveyard preaching. Yeah, but I, great point. His point was true. Spiritually dead people cannot come to life on their own. Only God can save spiritually dead people. So he had not only raised us up, but verse six says he seated us. 
This should make you think of reconciliation. To be seated with somebody is a relational term, right? Like, hey, come on over for dinner and have a seat at our dining room table. Or, hey, come to church with me. I got a, I got a couple seats next to me. Come and sit next to me. This idea of to be seated is a, rec, is a, a relational term. To be restored to a relationship. We are now sons and daughters seated with him. Who gets to sit with a king? Only sons and daughters. That's who gets to sit with a king. See, as great as resurrection is to, be, to come back to life, I think the best part of this verse is that we get God back, that we're seated with him in the heavenlies. Our relationship with God is restored. We're no longer enemies. God reconciles his enemies as sons and daughters. And then the third thing this, these verses teach us that in verse seven, it says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. That phrase in verse seven should make you think of rewards. Not only does he resurrect us and reconcile us, but he rewards us. This text is filled with the blessings we receive as God's children. He makes us children. And then over and over, it gives us pictures of the rewards. Verse seven says, he seats us. And where does he seat us? In the heavenly places a place of reward and blessing for those who are his children. Verse seven, it says, his kindness towards us. He loves to be kind to his children and bless his children. And then the last one that helps us understand rewards is that, our, that God rewards the guilty, right? That's who we are. Spiritually dead people are guilty. And yet God in all his love and mercy rewards us. One amazing thing that I've been learning as I've been studying this passage is that in verse, uh, chapter two, verse six, he talks about what he's done for us, how he raised us, he seats us in the heavenlies. And if you were to read the book of Ephesians, just from start to finish, chapter two, verse six would sound really familiar. You'd be like, wait a minute, I, I think I've read this verse before. It's because you have. Look at chapter one, verse 20. In chapter one, verse 20, the, Paul is describing what God did to Jesus. It says this, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And now in chapter two, verse six, he's describing what he's done for you. He's treating us like Christ. Not only did he raise Christ from the dead, but he raised you from the dead. Just as he seated Christ at the right hand of the Father, he's seating you in the heavenlies. This is what we get treated, just how Christ got treated. Enemies of God don't deserve to be treated like that. You know who deserves to be treated like that? Somebody who was 100% obedient for 33 years of their lives and ended really well. That's not my story. And yet I get treated like Christ. I get to be received the rewards that Christ received. Think about this. The gospel tells us that because of Christ's work on the cross, Enemies of God become sons of God. Braggers become repenters. That's what verse nine says. And then followers of Satan become followers of God. And verse 10, his workmanship. We become followers of him who do his bidding and his work created in Christ Jesus for good works. You want a good summary of Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10? Just read Ephesians chapter two, verses 12 through 13. It summarizes everything we just heard and learned. It says this, 
Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's our story. Far off, brought near because of the work of Christ. Church, it's incredible. This is your story and this is my story. All of us were once dead, now made alive. And as he, Paul screams out again, by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is all of our stories. But sadly, it's not everyone's story, right? Hopefully for some of us here and those listening online, like we can acknowledge this is our story, but we have to admit this is not everyone's story. There no doubt are many who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. They're still following false kings. They're still following the culture and they're still children of wrath. There are some, and it's possible that even some here today think they are alive, but aren't. They're still spiritually dead. And it's even possible that some of you in here today aren't sure. You read these verses and you think, man, I I hope that's true of me. I don't know though. I don't know if God has saved me, if he has reconciled me, if he's forgiven me. Here's what the word of God tells us to do. Here's how we can be saved. Agree with God about your current condition. Own the fact that you're on the wrong path. Own the fact that you're following false kings. Yell out to God, cry out to God and say, God, I, I'm a sinner. I'm a I'm sinful man. And then ask for help. Cry out to him and say, God, save me. Reconcile me. Forgive me. And God promises he will be faithful. If anyone calls upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Agree to your current condition and cry out for help. Because here's what I 100% believe. The gospel is not... God helps those who help themselves. That's not the gospel. I am so glad that the gospel is that God helps the helpless. And not only that, but God resurrects the dead. He reconciles his enemies and he rewards the guilty. Guys, this is really good news for you and for me. Can I ask you, before we conclude today, have you accepted this free gift yet? Have you believed in Christ? Have you acknowledged your sinfulness and cried out to him for help? Did you know you could do that today? You could believe today. You can cry out to Christ today, just like I did when I was young. I cried out to God and said, God, I'm a sinner, save me. That simple prayer brings God to the rescue and he'll scoop you out of your grave and bring you to life. This is what we celebrate today, the gospel, that God saves sinners. I just have two questions for you. I want you to wrestle with two things before you open up that cracker and that juice. Let me just help you think through two things before we take communion. Number one, do you believe this? We believe that communion is for believers. Communion is for those who have been reconciled. So if you can say, I've been forgiven, I've been saved. I'm that sinner that is described in verses one through three, and I've been made alive by God's grace, then would you join with us in communion just a little bit? Take that and rejoice 
and celebrate the gospel. But if you haven't, if that's not you, then communion is not for you. But it could be if you believe in Christ. If you receive the gift of salvation, own your sinfulness and cry out for help and for mercy. We would love to celebrate that with you today. And then lastly, who do you know who needs to hear this news? Remember that Sunday school teacher in Waterloo? I have no idea who she was, but she was faithful to share the good news. Will you do the same? Will you be faithful to share the good news that God makes spiritually dead people alive? Will you share that with that loved one of yours who is separated from God? We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.